Hello friends, special announcement before we get to today's episode. The Pat Johnson Show is being sponsored by a new friend of the show, Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. With Podcorn, there's no middleman. Podcasters of all size can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set your own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is here to support you at every step of the way and ensure you're protected and compensated for the work you do for brands. The Marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when you monetize. So, if you run a podcast or are looking to sponsor a podcast, click on the link in our show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. And now on to the Pat Johnson Show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. I've been a, a big fan of his coaching style, and we're actually going to cover his playing style when we get into it. So today's guest was a member of Durham Attack, where he's a provincial and national champion. He went on to represent Team Canada on our youth national team. He played for Ontario at Canada Games. For university, he went on to Thompson Rivers before transferring to Western, and he started coaching at Fanshawe, where he's a three-time provincial champion and a national champion. He's the director of the London Volleyball Club, He's also coached at Boston College, and through all this, he's coached several athletes who have made it on to professional or national team careers, so I can't wait to pick his brain about everything coaching and playing. Please welcome to the show, Pat Johnson. PJ, thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me. So, you're such an accomplished coach, I think people have forgotten your playing days, so let's let's get into it. You're growing up in the Whitby area. What made you choose volleyball over all the other sports? Because I think in Whitby, you can basically play whatever you want. That's a pretty good sports area, just in that Oshawa-Whitby area, right? Yeah, there, there was a lot of guys playing hockey around here. Like, I'm the James Neal, uh, Ranger kind of era. So, um, there's a lot of competition, but I was really lucky that my best friend, uh, Jeff McIntosh, his older brother, happened to be uh, getting involved with Durham Attack and said, hey, you're you're like six foot something. You should probably get away from soccer and start getting involved in volleyball here. Like, if you're sick of um, having those shorter guys run around you, like think this is your sport so yeah he dragged me into uh 14 new derm attack tryout and, and i loved it we were talking before the show you grew up in a pretty good era right with brooks johnson taylor hunt like a bunch of guys were getting offers out of province so when you started at 14 U, did you even know what post-secondary volleyball was or like how how quickly did you guys get competitive and then start looking at the next level yeah i, I was really lucky that that era was really deep for derm attack so we were having two and three teams in each age group. And I remember the one year of 14 U we went, uh, we went gold, silver and fifth at provincials in 14 U. And that was because our, one of our teams played another one in a quarterfinal. Otherwise I think we would have been one, two, three in the province. So from go, it was my introduction to volleyball was that we were really good. And, um, that really helped build a, a mindset that, that we're here to win and we're, we're always here to win. So, um, really lucky there at the start. And, yeah, those guys, uh, a lot of them had older brothers, which really helped because they, they knew what was coming, where we were a little bit less wide-eyed and petrified come bigger events. Nice. So take us through your process. Like, you're a provincial, you're a national champion. You start to realize that post-secondary volleyball is in your future. What was your recruiting process? Were you the one contacting schools or because the, the club and, and the teams you were on were so competitive, were you getting approached? Um, yeah, back then I was still thinking I was going to play for Manchester United and <laughs> play soccer. So that, uh, I wasn't thinking very much about post-secondary until maybe grade 11 or 12. And 
realized I was going to have the marks to, to be able to go to post-secondary. And um, it was probably 50-50 for me. The schools I really wanted to talk to and was interested in, I'd reach out to, but there were others that were, were reaching out to me. So it was uh, it was a bit of both, for sure. My, my advice would be to anyone that wants to to get there is just reach out to anyone you're interested in. And if the film's impressive, you're, yeah, you're, uh, you're at least got a foot in the door. Well, well, let's touch on that because uh, coaching a 17 boys team, obviously I was helping them with some videos and stuff. And I reached out to a friend of the show, Ian Abbott, and Ian gave me some great advice for you. He's like, make sure that like they have full game available or they'd invite us to watch them live because to put it Ian's way, he's never seen a bad highlight video, right? Like kids are so good these days that they, they are heavily edited, right? So you being a player and now being in that coaching role, do you want a stacked highlight video? Like do coaches really know that maybe just get their attention quickly and then send them the full match or get them in person? Like what would your advice be in that process? Yeah. Like I'd be wholeheartedly agreeing with Ian with a little caveat. So for me, it's tricky at first to, if I only get a, um, sorry, if I only get a full match, you could spend a few minutes and depending on the time of the year, you're sitting there hoping this athlete does something. So for me, I would, I would want say a 30 second or one minute highlight reel of something to catch my eye to say, Oh, okay, I'm going to watch a full match here. And then you start looking more at court movement and cue reading decision-making and um, how they conduct themselves between sets and between points and what type of intangibles they have. But for me, definitely, I, I would want a little something to catch my eye at first. Awesome, awesome. So again, looking at some of the names on your on your Dermatac squad, was going out of province just more appealing to you? Was it a, a Marks thing that you maybe hinted at earlier? Or why did so many guys choose to leave Ontario from your squad? I don't, I don't really know. I, uh, our coaches were pretty involved, and they were really encouraging us to to reach out to a lot of schools. And I think there's, when you're younger, there's definitely an attraction to, to leaving the province that, uh, and at that point too, the OUA didn't have a ton of money and weren't shelling much out. That's uh, a lot different now, but, um, that was a big piece for me. My marks were good. I was, I was getting in everywhere. Um, I'd applied in Ontario, but, uh, TRU was able to offer more money. And when I went out on my visit, Pat Henley gave me a great, uh, great, experience there and I, I loved it and thought that given the other athletes he had recruiting uh, or he had recruited it was going to be a pretty nice four or five years there because uh, my first year the the seven of us that wound up starting the opening match uh, I think six were first year and all repres had represented their country or were currently representing their country so that was a pretty neat and exciting experience for a, for a kid. Yeah, yeah. Help me with the timeline. So after you finish club nationals, is that when the youth national team opportunity came? Like, was there a formal tryout at that era of the national team, or were you selected and identified through nationals? So back then, it was an actual tryout. The first stage was uh, it was a hilarious experience at Ryerson, and it was an open tryout for all levels of men's national team. So in Kerr Hall, Ryerson, tiny roof. We had a court of youth national team guys, a court of junior national team guys, and a court of senior national team guys. And Ryan Marsden was running the tryout. Never forget, everyone, all of us from age 16 to 35 line up on the baseline. And he starts pointing at people and giving them a zone to serve. And if you miss, you stand, and everyone else does a full set of lines. And uh, <laughs> so I missed my serve straight into the net. Everyone runs. I'm standing there watching Brinkman and all these other guys run, and I'm wanting to run away and never come back. Um, but, yeah, I made it through that tryout, and then we had an actual team, like a youth team, probably about 30 guys from across the country 
had the proper try process at University of Montreal. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't picture Glenn running that drill right now in Gatineau, even if the full squad was there. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it was, I, I don't know what the plan was there. I think you wanted to, <laughs> wanted to see who could handle the heat, and, and I certainly didn't in that moment. Um, but, but yeah, I got, got through, so no complaints. When you get a chance to represent Canada, were you just over the moon to be named to that roster? Like, what was that experience? Because you're still quite young, and to get a national team nod, like, for you, did it just confirm that you were one of the best players in the country, or were you just ecstatic to be a part of it? Oh, I was I was just thrilled to to be uh, selected, and I mean, it was <laughs> on a different end. It was kind of confirmation for my dad, who was really pushing for me to, <laughs> to keep playing soccer, and didn't know how good I, or if I was good at volleyball. So he was like, all right, all right, fine. You can stop playing soccer because uh, it seems like you're decent at this volleyball thing. So. <laughs> so then just to follow your timeline, so you go club, national team, and then I think you play your first year CIS and then Canada Games follows, right? Like the national team and Canada Games weren't the same summer, were they? No. So 2004 was Team Canada. Um, and then 2005 was, so I was grade summer between 10 and 11 for national team, summer between 11 and 12 was Canada Games in 05. Oh, so you got to go back to high school and tell everybody you were on the national team. Yeah, exactly. Big shooter. The, I was going to say London Free Press, the Whippy this week, big big times. Nice, nice. Do you think, how did you handle that as a club player? Like sometimes you see club kids in warm-up and they, they make a point to either wear their Team Ontario or Team Canada shirt. Like were you that guy in high school in club warm-up or did you kind of just, just take it as it was and, and continue competing and going through like the, the cycle that is youth sports in Ontario? I remember my club coach made a pretty clear point, like this is your tribe, you're not with that other tribe. As much as I'm sure 16, 17-year-old me wanted to wear all my Team Canada gear, I'm pretty sure Josh had a good good leash on me and, and made the right call for me to not be that punk that rolls around wearing another team's gear when I'm with my current team. There's a long-awaited shout out there. You played for Josh. Like, were you on his Woodpeckers teams? Oh yeah. Oh man. Yep. Josh Dobsnick. We had a really good run. 16, 17, 18. You. We only lost a couple of matches that that year. We won nationals. We didn't uh, didn't lose a match all year and played up in a couple tournaments even. So it was, yeah, it was a really good run with a with still some of my best friends. Like I'm uh, I'm back in Whippy right now, and when I come back, the the people I see are now that I think about it, they're all my old Derm Attack teammates. Wow. Well, yeah, I got to meet Josh one year when I was at Durham College. He's obviously a big part of the volleyball community. So him and Shane Christopher took me out for dinner and I learned a lot. Good guy doing things in New Zealand now, I believe, right? Yep. Yep. He is. Nice. So again, following your timeline. So you commit to Thompson Rivers. Pat's got you on the hook, like good recruiting trip. What was your first year of Canada West like? Was that a big jump from the club system? Uh, huge. So he, I had played libero with... Uh, with the Canada Games team, I was a very much a passing P2 left side with the national team. So I knew that I wasn't the biggest jumper, had a fast arm, but again, just didn't have any any crazy angles, but was there more for reception and, and defense. And um, and when I get to TRU, I'm assuming I'm playing libero. I'd been libero throughout all training camp. And sure enough, we opened our season at Trinity Western's old gym, which I don't know if you've been there. It is even lower than Kerr Hall. Wow. Um, it's about Redeemer, I'd say, if you've been there. And I'm looking across the net, and Pat sets me up in position five as the P2. So I'm looking at my two zone two blockers being Josh Howitson 
and Steve Rogalski. <laughs> and that was the opening game of the season. And they had won nationals the previous year. So I'm watching them raise the CIS banner to the ceiling while I'm realizing I'm swinging for the first time in a couple of years. Like not even, I hadn't even trained as a, as a left side and he just threw me in. So I think I caught fingers on the way to the back wall a couple times, but um, we lost the match to say the least. Welcome to the show, kid. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Good luck. They won nationals last year, and you're all first year. Yeah. Nice, nice. And sorry, I, I do want to get to your coaching stuff, but not to skip over your playing. So who was on your Canada game cycle, and what was that experience like going to a, a big multi-sport games like that? Yeah, Canada Games is really cool because it's basically a little mini Olympics. So, like ha being able to have uh, have matches where there'd be a couple thousand people there, and and maybe the track team was off that day, so it'd be three or four hundred of them. Like that part was really cool, and how into it all the athletes were. That cycle, I was Jer uh, with Jeremy Grunveld, Sean Bench, Sander Ratsep, Kyle Bryce, uh, Nate Grunveld, Paul Herkel, Reed Hall. Yeah, a lot of a lot of great friends and teammates on that that squad obviously your resume is building you get to thompson rivers and then you make the decision to transfer back home and you're going to go to western so what went into that decision to return to not only ontario but to select western uh classic 18 19 year old whatever it was decision this girl back home was kind of missing home to begin with uh i love the social part of oba events and going to tournaments and kind of knowing all my opponents and and it was weird getting out to, to TRU where I, I loved being a part of the program. The guys were great. The city was fun. I loved the coaching. I just found I'd go to matches and not know anyone and was kind of wishing that I was in matches still against friends. And yeah, it was just, just, just missed home and uh, pulled the trigger to, to transfer into Western and get my coaching career started because I had to, had to sit out for a year. So that was probably the, one of the crazier things that came out of it is, is during that year I wound up at 19 being the head coach for Western against Windsor because because uh, Jim Sage couldn't make a match and that's when I really really fell in love with it no way that's that's hilarious so what were you going to study like did you know that coaching like was the master's of coaching program that popular that you knew what it was and that's what you wanted to eventually pursue or like that was your first hand of coaching you're like man this I could I could do this yeah like I, so in, in high school I coached Anderson I got really lucky that my high school girls team could have won offsa back to back years with a with a pylon as the head coach like it was it was a stacked team and i was fortunate enough there that i jumped in and coached that team and so winning offsa was a good start to the coaching career and then and then yeah being being the head coach of that match was pretty neat and i'd uh, i'd always kind of been interested and had my eye on the coaching program and then that was when i for sure thought okay that's this is this is the path i want to take and if i can get a master's at the school I'm already at. That's a, a bonus. Nice. Now give us the behind the scenes of Western here. Cause I think some pessimists in Ontario take a few shots at Western every once in a while where the budget isn't big enough where some years they don't have warm up jerseys. Like uh, Garrett told us you did a butterfly drill. I think every day you probably skip stretching to do butterfly. That's how popular the butterfly drill was. Like just take us through the culture of how there's this ragtag bunch, but you guys are winning and you're good. But like, yeah. like I said, you don't you don't have matching warm ups. You do the same three drills every practice. By the sounds of it, just just let us in behind the scenes of what's really happening. It's it's compete from go. Like that's that's the thing. I uh, like Jim and I still talk all the time, and we we scrimmage with them lots. And I think we'll, given the restrictions this fall, we'll be scrimmaging a ton with them. Um, it's 
what Jim's able to do is build a culture where you fight every night going to practice and and you want to go to practice every night. We do a lot of gameplay, but like you think back of Bill James and Garrett and Sean McKay and these guys that come out of that program as absolute warriors. Um, when we basically get warm, work on a couple things, and then get into some gameplay with focus and uh, and just absolutely battle for an hour just about every night. So like when the season's as long as it is, six nights a week, you can kind of get drained and in the short days of the winter you're uh, dragging getting into practice but we never were at western we were always fired up to get there and we were a pretty social team too so we knew that if we were together at practice there was probably going to be something happening after and yeah it was a blast and were you comfortable right away like when you transferred and obviously you had to sit out that one year but when you get into it playing in front of family and friends, being around the league and seeing guys that you grew up with. Was that what you were kind of searching for with your post-secondary career? Yeah, it was, it was great to get, to get back to just being a little bit comfortable, more comfortable. And like, I had a lot of friends at Western and Fanshawe, which was the reason I, I chose to go to Western. So some Dermatac teammates were already there and, and I built a pretty good relationship with Jim and was really looking at Western even before I went to TRU. So yeah, it was just nice being able to know we're playing against Queens and, oh, I know half that team. And it just made the before the game and after the game a little bit more fun for me. And were you doing anything as a player that you took as a coach? Like uh, sometimes you hear really obsessed liberos who they want to keep a journal or they want to take notes or they want to do something beyond just like what the coach game notes were. So because you already had an interest in coaching, were you doing anything extra as a player? Yeah, Jeff Weiler, actually, uh, former national team lib for quite a while. So Wheels was an assistant coach at Western, actually. But before that, he, he popped into that Canada game summer and talked to us about a book that he kept where he had a page on each player in the league and so that he knew what their tell was for when they were going off speed or what types of shots they liked, what where they attacked when they, say, had to play a ball short and then attack, those types of things. Um, so as a lib at Western, I, I kept a book to try and track and and know what um, opposing attackers could do and if it was as simple as writing that information down after the match or while watching film and and returning to it before we played them the next time I figured it was if it was going to get me even one extra dig it was worth doing it but let's test your recall Joran Zeman go oh off body thumb down back down the line you I'm sorry Joran if you're listening (laughs) he hell of a player but the I think it does that guy more than anyone in the OUA, just such a true ball down the line. And, uh, I mean, he bounced plenty in front of me, but, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was a fun guy to dig. He just hit such a snappy, true, true attack. Yeah. He was going to get a ton of volume. That's why he was one of the first names that came to mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's right. They, I mean, they beat us in a couple of OUA finals, so I can't say much. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. Well, you know, I just got to keep it interesting for the listeners out there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you're, you're progressing through your OUA career. You get into this Masters of Coaching. So take me through the details of that because obviously you're in a class of people who want to pursue coaching, but they're from several different sports, right? So what is the the theory going on? And then how do you make it practical to volleyball? Just let us behind the scenes of what the actual course load looks like before we get into uh, your co-ops and practical experience. Sure. So yeah, it's it's, it's split uh, between the theory, like the, the classroom stuff, and then your your placements, you have to do two placements. Um, but in the theory side of things, I think they did a really good job of making it applicable for everyone. Because at first you think, okay, how could a 
a squash coach and a football coach and a volleyball coach talk about anything. But um, we had a course on strategy and tactics in sport and talked about some simple concepts that translate from volleyball, say, to, to football. Talking about separation and overload principles, like all of that holds true in a lot of, a lot of team sports. So um, that was pretty neat to see how it applied to other sports. And that actually helped me kind of open my mind to not getting stuck in the, the mold and, and trying to look for ways to be creative. We had a sports site course, which obviously transferred across, and uh, lots of culture building, which was was really cool. Um, I think they realized we're not going to be able to dig into each sport individually, so let's let's focus on some themes that can transfer and actually help these coaches. So I, I love the program. I'd recommend it to anyone. And I was really lucky that I was the, the first person they allowed to go and do their placement, not at Western. Because typically that's the path, and I think they realized, wait, if we open this up to more than just our coaches, we can get more students into the program. So that was that was really cool that they uh, allowed me to do that. Yeah, yeah. Before we go down that path, I was wondering if you could share some actual examples of that culture stuff you guys covered, because I think it's it's overhyped in sports, where I think a new GM or a new coach comes in and they want to apply their culture, but... Culture exists whether you identify it or not, right? So I'm wondering how do you build it and frame it in the direction you want to go with it? Like, what are some things that you took away that you might even have applied in your own coaching from this course? Sure. Yeah, the, the, the big one that jumps to mind, we talked about Anson Dorrance at UNC Women's Soccer and, and um, his competitive cauldron. So I don't, I don't know how exactly he applies this to soccer, but I look at volleyball where essentially the cauldron means every contact is quantified you either get a positive a negative a double positive a double negative or or it's a wash and so to me volleyball is so clearly every contact is quantified it's either a kill it's an error or it's continue every time you swing and you can make those more um, detailed and expand those stats but that was something that that immediately i started scribbling notes and thinking how can i apply this to volleyball and i still use that to this day as and that's when you say accountability, that's for my program, that's what I mean by accountability, that if we are looking at numbers as often as we are, you, you can't take a night off. Sweet. So let's let's take a dive there because I think one thing that's famous about uh, his competitive cauldron is he's admitted it doesn't, it doesn't affect the lineup. So it's something to chart and to rank players, and you can put it on the board and say, Pat, you're a better passer today than Josh was. But he said it doesn't always affect, like, if you win the cauldron, you're not necessarily starting, right? So in your gym, does it affect your starting lineup? Or are you just doing it to see who's learning the most, the fastest, or improving the most, the fastest? Yeah, I'd say it, it's not an absolute. Um, there are a couple times in my seven years at, at Fanshawe where I've said, okay, straight up, whoever wins the cauldron this week is, is starting. Um, only done that a couple times maybe when the compete level lately had been a little bit lower. But typically, the people who are at the top are your starters, which is kind of nice that at the end of a practice, like I, I haven't had a lot of players, you know, the classic coach, can I talk to you after practice? You know, about playing time, whatever. We haven't had a lot of that because guys are constantly looking at either the spreadsheet or the whiteboard and realizing that people are outperforming them in, in key areas. And, and we weigh skills differently for different positions. So, Someone might look at attacking and see, oh, I'm, I'm attacking better, but I'm looking and saying, well, you're you're in a P2 for us, and we need you to receive, not attack. So um, it for me, it helps to keep the team motivated and 
not have any infighting about playing time and stuff like that. Nice, nice. And I like how you're charting skills and not just necessarily who won the drill, right? And, and I'm wondering the oh, other... Yeah, absolutely. Very rarely do we do we do anything with wins. It's more about, um, like, if it's a simple serve pass, I'm like, well, we got an extra guy that's off uh, recovering from an injury. Here, let's wheel the whiteboard out. And just, just the moment that thing gets wheeled out, guys are a little bit more focused and realize that when we go get water, we're going to be gathering around that whiteboard. And I'm not going to even talk about it, but I realize they're looking past me at the whiteboard. Yeah, that was going to be my next question was the the other knock on the competitive cauldron, if you really get into the, the deep dive of reading comments online and people who've tried it, blah, 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 is sometimes athletes, it, it takes away from their learning. Like the, some for some athletes, performance and learning is a different phase in their brain. Yep. And they're, they're going to be afraid to make mistakes if they know they're being charted, right? And, and they might get tight. So how have you navigated those situations in your gym? Are you, are you siding with the John May side where it's about performance and you need to perform whether I'm keeping count or not? Or do you allow for like a learning phase that they can make mistakes and have that like growth mindset style of uh, learning in your gym? Yeah, like I think it's I think you have to have for, for me at least I think you have to have opportunities for both. So if there's a night where I know we're gonna cauldron things heavily, um, basically the practice is three phases. The first phase we we warm up and, and do a bit of ball control. Then the second phase we're working on whatever the focus is for that night from a genuine developmental standpoint. And say if the warm up lasts a half hour, the um, development phase lasts 30 minutes or 40 minutes and then for the last 40 minutes that's when we say okay so you've worked on this you've made your mistakes you've experimented you've tried new things um now it's time to perform and the whiteboard will come out and it's it's all tracked from there so i think you need to let them try it obviously first you can't especially if it's a new skill we can't start evaluating right away that wouldn't make any sense but um i think you need both and are you using the exact same cauldron at fanshawe that you would with a youth team uh, the Fanshawe one's a little bit more advanced, um, like attacking, for example, with the Fanshawe Cauldron. There are different levels of continues. So if, if someone attacks and we get a free ball back, that gets them more points than if they attack um, a roll shot to the libero and the other team's back in system. So the three levels of continue at the college level for us are you get a free ball back or they're at system or they're in system. So at the club level, it's a bit harder to, I found it's harder to do that because the other team just might have poor ball control and what was a bad shot, say the worst shot possible, a roll shot to the libero, that lib in club might be weak anyway and, and might wind up giving you a free ball. So it's not as helpful, I found. I'm just trying to figure out the, the practicality. So you're either injured players or assistant coaches have the whiteboard out and every contact gets graded, right? So are they just, uh, I imagine like your grading system is a plus or a minus. So it's not like they're doing like longhand here, but are they having to keep up with the, the length of the rally? Like if you're doing a wash drill, are they just constantly on the whiteboard? How, how fast is Jeff's hand moving or some of these injured players? <laughs> so usually we'll have a caller and, uh, and a couple of people on the, on the whiteboard. We uh, won't do smart. all the skills at once for sure. That would be, That'd be wild, but we'll probably have, say, if it's a, a serve and pass day, those two skills are pretty comfortably done by one person on the whiteboard. Or maybe it's a block D day where we're ignoring serve, pass, and attack. And But every time there's a block or a dig option to enter it into the cauldron, we'd enter those. So we're just kind of picking maybe skills that we're struggling with or skills we want to focus on or 
or if we're trying to see between two players maybe that week, we'll, we'll just be selective about what we put on the cauldron. And you mentioned it gets player buy-in because it's, it's pretty evaluation-friendly that you can show them the contacts. Have you ever had a parent, because you are coaching club, push back on this where maybe they just don't see the value of the competitive cauldron? Or if you explain it the way you just did to us, is it pretty pretty good across the board with whoever you're working with, whether it's athlete, parent, or other coaches? Yeah, I've, I've, to be honest, I've never, fingers crossed, doesn't happen, but I've never had a parent or an athlete really come and say, look, I don't, I don't like this thing. I think it, because the, the challenge at the club level is someone's coming in last because at the end of the, at the end of the cauldron, all of the stats are weighted differently and they actually get an impact score. So that's like your grade for the match. And it's like baseball, it's out of a thousand. So a good, uh, a good percentage for a match is about 400. Um, each position's a little bit different, but it's tough because someone's going to come last. But at the end of the day, if, if, if that helps the parent as well see why maybe their son or daughter isn't getting as much playing time, it, it helps there as well. Because I, I, seven or eight years of club coaching now, I've had one, one that comes to mind where a parent was, was unhappy about playing time. Now I'm thinking, is everything public? Because the yeah, bringing up the club example, like I, I know you don't usually coach 14U, but if you're coaching a 14U team and the same kid is last every practice, like obviously at the start of the season, maybe that's going to motivate them and focus them to get the better. But I think there's got to be a breaking point. So, oh for sure, are you ever keeping it private, or are you only listing like the top five, or are you honestly putting like one through twelve or whatever the roster is in public every single time you you evaluate? Yeah, if I was coaching younger athletes, for sure it would be more about tracking our development, not so much comparing them to one another, especially with, with fair play. It wouldn't be about determining playing time. It would be about seeing who's who's getting better and what skills more so we would need to focus on. Like it would be tracking for focusing on practice, whereas at the, at the college level, I'd literally just send the Excel document as it is. So there's no, I'm not pulling info from it. I just send it and they can sift through the cells themselves at, at a 14 U level, I probably would maybe pick like, Hey, here was the tournament and here's our top passer. Here's our top setter, whatever. Like I would definitely, I think you should spin it pretty positively for the younger kids. Nice. Nice. So nice little sidetrack there learning lots. So back to where you were going, you get the nod from your professors to say you're the, you're the first one to leave Western, which I think makes sense because the, the volleyball program at Western had a lot to offer, but you coming through as a player and already, you know, making your head coaching debut, maybe there was another opportunity for you to learn elsewhere. So how did you identify going to the NCAA? Yeah, it, it definitely wasn't a knock on, on Jim at all. Um, he, he realized I'd already been there for six years at that point, five years at that point. So I had a, a Canadian friend, actually, Chris Campbell, who was uh, had just moved from Auburn to Boston College and got the head job, which in, in a big conference in the ACC, um, I, I reached out to him to see if that was something we could we could make happen. And and once I got his his okay, the the coaching department at Western took a little bit to think about it and thought, you know what, we could probably expand here and, and not be limited to the amount of teams that are at Western because they, they typically wouldn't put two students with a, a team. So yeah, it was, it was great to be able to get into the NCAA and, and just see, even just from a perspective of seeing the different facilities, like being a, a kid, all of a sudden we had a, a match early in the season at Duke at Cameron Indoor, which something like that, you're thinking, geez, this is worth it right here. Like, I'm glad I made this call because beating Duke 3-0 on Coach K's court was, was pretty cool. 
yeah, that, that's definitely a great experience and being a part of a big conference like you were. So be honest, when you get there, are you treated like an arm or how much of a role as an assistant did you get there? Because usually some of those NCAA schools have a big staff, right? And, and different, uh, different officiating rules. So people are standing up and shouting and it's not like here in Canada where if you're not the first chair, you can't really move or cough or do anything, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, it was, um, it was pretty cool because the, I mean, it, I benefited from Boston College being so underfunded, it's got a it's got a similar athletic department model to Western, where they want to offer every team that's that the OUA sponsors. So if there's sailing, they've got it, right? So Boston Colleges has a Boston College has a lot of teams, but they're not really well funded. So where most staff have four or five full timers and a couple of grad assistants, we only had there were only three of us total. So Chris was the head coach, and uh, like I said, East Coast Canadian fella, and the assistant coach was Brazilian fella, Dega, who I took a ton from, um, and myself. So I was the data volley guy in matches and often during practice, but I'd say most of the time I was on a box as an arm. Um, But that being said, with only three of us, Chris and Dega really valued my input, and, and I was allowed to be like a, a full-fledged member of that three-person staff because we all kind of brought different things. Now, you can give Chris a shout-out. I just don't have a story to tell because I, I've never uh, met them in person, but somebody brought Daga to Ontario to coach Beach. I think it was maybe Rebecca Moskowitz hired him. And just watching from a distance, the Brazilian style, I'll call it, with multi-ball and different situations and things like that, was he doing that indoors as well? Oh, big time. Like the, the like you say multi-ball, that's... that's three quarters of my practices at Fanshawe where like, I'm not a a huge believer in, especially at the college level in one athlete with super technical, with a coach behind them, fixing things, fixing things. The Brazilian model is if if I quote Dega, find one way. I don't care how you pass, find one way to get it to the target. And he has a couple main principles, but everything is learn on the fly um, there's balls flying at you everywhere. It's not controlled. You're always cue reading and decision making. And I don't know if that's intentional or if that's just a, how the Brazilians train, but you would never just serve a ball in a dega practice because in a game, you don't ever just serve a ball. So it's always serve, step in, make a dig, uh, set your own dig, go cover, dig that, set your own dig there. Like you're always touching the ball five or six times before you leave a drill. So I, I saw that, I loved that, participated in some of the drills and realized they were a blast and, and helpful. So yeah, I stole a ton of that multi-ball stuff from him. Yeah, that was a good example you just gave. Can you give another one? Because my only flaw with the Brazilian style is I think people who don't fully understand it just see it and they start chucking balls. And as soon as it loses either, to me, the cycle of actions in our sport or like you said, cue reading decision-making, well, now we're just playing birthday party and we're having a fun time and people are chasing and diving all over the place, but it's not, it's not volleyball. And I really start to argue the transfer, right? So I like how you talked about the amount of cue reading and the dig set cover like that to me follows the cycle of action. So that's totally fine. And I'll probably steal that and do it in my own gym. But can you maybe give another example of, of a good one? And then maybe what you've seen that maybe gets abused. If you kind of know what I'm talking about, where some people who don't get it, try it. And it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like, like I've seen, like I've had coaches come into Fanshawe gym, watch us do some things. 
and I'll be poking around other gyms and I see coaches try some of those things. But the, the biggest thing that doesn't work with multi-ball stuff at the club or high school level is that the gyms are smaller, the walls are near, and it's not safe because you like we're, we have a hundred balls at Fanshawe, so it's easy to let the balls roll to the corner. But in club practice with twelve balls, it's it's a major safety hazard to have them always all over the place. You don't have enough people to do the drills and shag. So um, that's a huge knock for sure at that level. But for example, at, at Fanshawe, rather than just have say say you're working on athletes attacking um, down the line. Rather than just have people on a box and a setter setting and attackers going down the line, you would have somebody serve. So it's always following the sequence of actions. Somebody, you'd say, have all your middles serving. Then they slide into position five, and then the ball gets set to right side, and the attack comes down the line. So there's always a live defender, always a live hitter, and it's happening how it happens. So you serve, and then you defend. And something as simple as that, like it's it's more the concept that once you wrap your head around it, you can apply it in a million different ways. Nice. And even after even after that, say you serve, you step in, a ball gets attacked down the line, you defend it or you don't, and then a ball comes flying at you from someone out of bounds, um, and you have to set a high ball and then leave the drill. But it's just adding contact in a split second that that to me it's just so valuable to if you're going to be in a drill, you you might as well do a few things before you leave the drill. Okay, so you really are focusing on like reps per hour, like they're getting so many contacts and the situation still matches, so therefore you get the, the magic word we're all looking for as coaches is transfer, right? Right, and, and it's just, it's important that it's not chaos. Like I've seen it done before, and, and at times I'll say, okay, and then we're going to add a ball here, and, and, and because it's not a specific, sometimes I get carried away and I'll add one there, but then pretty quickly you can tell, okay, the timing of this doesn't work. We don't have enough time while that high ball's in the air to get another rep in or whatever and so pretty quickly you can tell when when the timing's off but yeah I'm a, I'm a big believer and if you can get more reps into a sequence get them in there so again just for our listeners who can steal this you've given two good examples so i'm wondering if you if you had to pick a skill from scratch are you always going off a serve like how do you instead of just stealing what daga gave you I'm, I'm sure you've created your own right so you're at home and you're thinking oh we really need to work on this situation where does your brain go from there to add these multi-balls or this situation um, yeah, it's funny. That reminds me of, I remember one in the first week I was in the gym with Dega. Actually, I started with him at Auburn University in, in Alabama. And I remember saying to him after practice, I didn't really know him. I was like, hey, hey Dega, what was that drill? We, the second drill we did today, like, what do you call that? And like, can I write? He was like, drill? I don't do drill. We play. <laughs> like, he didn't even, he didn't, it, it wasn't even, I bet it wasn't even planned. He never had, and, and I, I don't agree with all of this, but he didn't have a practice plan. He had ideas in his mind, and he would build off of it. So, for me, transferring that to Fanshawe, whatever it is we need to focus on, that has to be able to happen nearly every time in the drill. We can't have the drill not work, or sorry, the drill can't fail at the point we're working on. Or sorry, at, before the point we're working on. So if we're working on attacking down the line, we can't have it so that only one in five sequences do we actually get an opportunity to swing down the line. But you start with what the thing is, and then I try and add the sequence of actions, what happens before it and after it, to make it feel a little bit more organic, and, and then just repeat the heck out of it as much as you can. 
and obviously the the more coaches make this easier but it sounds like with your multi-wall drills like you have a star of the drill like you said like the line attack so your outside hitter is getting feedback and getting the key rep but the more coaches you have is somebody all of a sudden talking to the setter about like their prep step and getting to the ball or how how much coaching's going on versus just like let's get the balls flying let's get balls in the air and make sure everybody's getting touches right now if there's a something technical that really needs to get hammered home we would send a coach there but for the most part it's, it's more doing than coaching like i'd say in a, in a regular two-hour practice i'm probably only stopping practice once or twice and that's for 10 or 15 seconds tops and that'll usually just be uh, an accountability check just like a, hey this, is this our best no all right go get a quick drink come back in jog back in and get right back into the drill so we're we're just trying to make as make the most of the time we have and and yeah, especially at the college level where we're not doing massive technical changes because guys have built some habits and maybe have only got them for a year or two. So it's it's more about creating opportunities for them to work on what they need to work on and get the heck out of the way. Yeah, I, I love this because something I'm experimenting with is stealing from soccer that a lot of coaches are redoing the way they do fitness and a lot of coaches like Marino are tired of running around cones and stuff and they're just trying to play a lot at game speed to think of fitness and I'm thinking the way you're running your drills that that's volleyball cardio because they're jumping at game speed they're moving there's so many balls that there's not a lot of downtime so have you found just a ripple effect of benefits that not only are they getting contacts and learning but they're also like like I said they're in volleyball shape after a practice like this? I hadn't thought too, too much about that. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm definitely not a, a punishment style coach. Like I think in seven years at Fanshawe, we've probably run a, a total of five sets of dive lines. I, I feel like if we're going to burn energy and maybe risk injury, I'd rather do it getting better rather than just being punished. Um, so it, it's not really coming from a place of, of that, but I, I guess in, now that you're making me a little reflective here, it probably does help their their conditioning for sure. Um, but I just want like I want practices to be fun, and I think if you're doing the things you do in a game, that that's fun and they like playing, so um, it, it kind of ticks all the boxes for me. So we've already talked a little bit about culture. I just wanted to pull on you stopping practice and and the classic coach quote, is this our best? Because uh, I was listening to uh, Pete Carroll and a different podcast, and they were talking about football players that some of them don't know what accountability is. They just know they don't have it, right? Because that's, excuse me, that, that's the classic football line that you guys aren't being accountable, but the coach never actually took the time to describe what does that look like? What does that mean? What are some actions? So for you in your gyms, when you do stop and make sure that this is our best effort, like what does that actually look like? And did you guys have a team talk or really define what that is other than like, oh, you didn't try your best for that, right? Yeah, we. It's, I guess it's not really something that gets gets talked about a ton. Um, it, it just kind of is. And I've been so, so, so lucky that at Fanshawe, we've, there's been a lot of athletes I've already coached through the club system. Um, like that year we won nationals a couple years back, the... 11 of our 16 were LBC guys, which really helped because I didn't need to talk about culture or when we shag, we run and, and just what everything looked like that that was already there. So once it's kind of already there, the young guys just follow the older guys and then they become the older guys. And it just kind of, kind of takes care of itself for the most part. But I, I think for me, something I, I try and be mindful of is whenever things aren't going exactly how, how I want them, it's important to use the the word we like, is this our best? What are we doing? Like, how did you guys, or how did we sleep last night? Like trying to make sure it's, it's always we, we, we when it's, 
something bad, um, instead of saying we won and they lost, it's like we lost, um, but I'm in there with them. And if something's going wrong on their end, uh, at some level, it's something I've done wrong. So, And we had uh, Dre on the show and he talked about going through with Seb and like, like you said, going from club to Fanshawe, like there was a lot of transfer there. He mentioned that they would have a thing in practice that if somebody was dogging it, like Dre had no problems calling people out and had no problems being called out himself, right? So instead of saying that happens organically, because to some coaches that can mean it's happening by accident, like what are some things that you've actually produced in practice where guys are comfortable to say, you know what, guys, this isn't good enough, and maybe JJ can get on Seb or the other way around? Like you can have leaders take over the effort where it's not always coming from you, but but you've kind of created the platform to do that. Does that make sense? For sure, yeah. Like, like obviously, guys like Sebastian and Andre make my life a lot easier because when their sense of what's acceptable in our gym is is in a really similar place to mine, and because they're the ones out there playing, it, it they tend to get emotional quicker than I would. So where I'd be patient and sit back and see, okay, what's going to happen here? Like I should call this drill dead right now, and we should take a break or talk about it or whatever i'll usually give it a few extra minutes and just see is because there's opportunities for leadership there so rather than them always hear my voice which i'm sure they're going to get sick of it's a long season and it usually happens that way where a sebastian or an andre would stop the drill themselves and just having that trust of like sebastian and andre my goodness it's been like seven eight years coaching those guys and and they know what i would be okay with and they're totally fine say stopping the drill themselves and calling the team in which means so much more than me doing it. We're kind of going off script. I'm just asking stuff that pops up because there's so much I want to you know, pick your brain about and so many things you're good at. And one thing I had in my notes here is just talking about how creative you are as a coach. And anyone who's watched Fanshawe the few years, like you've had a four outside system, bringing up Dre again. When he played there, he was in a two-person serve receive. Like you've, you've found a way to maximize strengths by doing some non-traditional stuff like i don't know how many coaches would win a provincial championship with sebastian lethbridge blocking middle but hey you guys went and did it and you made it work right so (laughs) he is a beast and and so changing his system and making him set from the middle and now read block in the middle what goes into those decisions where you're not afraid to pull the trigger and say you know what this probably isn't going to work but we got to see it and then you're like wow we're, we're onto something right like how do you give yourself permission to try these like radical things it kind of just comes down to what our personnel is that year. Like I, I know people have said before, my best friend Jeff rags on me a ton. Like, oh, what creative thing are you doing this year to get people looking at your team? I'm like, it's not to get people looking at my team. It's, <laughs> it's, it's what's best for for this group. And and that year with the four outsides, we were super deep on the pins, and we were a little thinner in the middle. And I think we only had the three middles even to train with. So, at, the first thing was how do I get Cole Jordan, Will Otten. Sam Otten and Zach Albert on the court at the same time, knowing that none of them can play middle and who would be our second middle. Cause we're a little thin there. And we, uh, I think it was in September. We had, we were doing some read react blocking and, and Sebastian went in the middle. I just threw him in there and said, Hey, like go make some reads. And he was closing to left and right side. We didn't talk about footwork. We didn't train it. Like it wasn't like a, okay, here's our plan. And let's, walk you through the technical piece i'm like look sebastian's an athlete and he's seen he's seen uh middle blockers and he knows the footwork and he's coached with me a bit before and and so he just went out there and did it and closed not at the same speed necessarily but the same timing because he was able to pick up reads off the setter's hands so quickly so right away i realized he's a dynamite middle blocker 
Um, and it wasn't until the national final that year that was the first time uh, we got exposed there. And Limalu, uh, yeah, that, that middle wound up in Gatineau. And I think he had Sebastian's number that day, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what goes into your process? Because uh, it's interesting that you're being creative, but to also label that an athlete can't do something. Because I think if you had more time, Cole Jordan or one of the other outsides, they can play middle. They're super athletic. They're good volleyball players. But for you to say he's already a top tier outside, let's figure out a way to get him to play outside. Like, is that where you get the wheel spinning? Like, how do you, without being negative, label a situation yeah. and say, yeah, you I know guess, what? I guess that's you're you're bang on. Like, it's, it's probably not fair to say, oh, he's not a middle. Like, I mean, Will Otten had played middle at Ryerson um, for a little bit, but he had done it, um, and so we had looked into that. And Will was saying, you know, I'm I'm kind of here for my fifth year. I want to have fun. No, I don't really want to play in the middle. And and I I don't take that as a as a selfish thing. I take that as a you know what like these are young young men that just want to have fun and play. And I want them to, to have fun when they're coming in six nights a week. So that uh, that got me thinking of a, a Fraser Valley team um, that I saw at the club level that did this. And I thought you know what let's if if these four outsides are true outsides and that's what they want to do. I think we can make this work if it hinges upon Sebastian's ability to make good reads, which is kind of what it did. And if, if uh, the system hinges on that, I think we're going to figure it out. And, and along the same lines, uh, again, I just playing devil's advocate with the two person serve receive, obviously that was a strength, but if uh, a long-term coach of JJ maybe says, well, he needed those service receive reps because now I want him to play for my pro club and you robbed him of that what was the decision to say we need to maximize our team and sorry your your personal development's gonna have to take a back seat right now but you can go bang balls and be one of the best offensive players in the ocaa yeah to me that was like if you said for where jj was coming in he didn't start volleyball till grade 12 so super raw obviously at high school and club level he played middle he was youth national or junior national team middle so i think it would have been unfair to him and not set him up for success if we went with him going from a middle who'd never been in the back row and never received serve to a left side. So for me, it was the logical progression where he became a non-passing left side as weird as that is, but he had to play defense in the back row. He had to learn how to see the game um, and play defense from the back row where the next logical progression was um, for him to go to right side and I think he was a much better defender and player. Now he's a he's a right side playing, going to be playing pro in, in Germany. That that season as a non-passing left side, as unorthodox as that is, that got him a snapshot of what life in the back row is like. Um, instead of throwing him all the way in as a as a left side, and when we had Andre and Gunner able to pass half a court each, that made that decision a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah, awesome. This is this is good stuff. Thanks for sharing all that you have because I think it's a it's a great debate that coaches can always poke and find flaws in other coaches. Like I remember when I was at the OVA at a coaching clinic, one of the most heated debates I've ever witnessed was Jason Terpene was our technical director at the time, and he brought up Tim Tebow and his arm swing. And was Urban Meyer a bad coach because Tim Tebow didn't have an NFL release? Like he had a long loopy arm swing. And right. the, the debate was, well, Tim Tebow was player of the year and won a couple of national championships. I think Urban Meyer did his job. It's not yeah, his yeah, job Meyer's to make job him. His job is, is he, to win. 
so yeah it's not his fault that tim tebow doesn't have an nfl release and it's now tim tebow's job or the nfl's job to do it so it was just this funny debate of like if you're at a certain level is it always your job to produce the next level and i think you found the balance of at fanshawe you're going to win but jj is also going to play pro volleyball and you've also gotten people to fdc and pro right so i think you've walked the line of being creative but you never you never sell the athlete short right like i was playing devil's advocate there i don't think jj was hindered because he didn't get to serve receive in your system right like you still had his best interest at heart right yeah i think we all knew that that if jj was going to play at the the highest levels it was going to be as a right side um he, he just too i think too um late to the sport to to really be a, a quality passer um so if the options for his development were jj back in the middle or him as a non-passing left side and going through the back row i think going through the back row had huge benefits and him learning how to hit a high ball right that's something he'd never done before so in the in the big picture it might have looked short-sighted but it was definitely better for his development and certainly for our team um but better for his development than him shoving him back in the middle We've talked a lot about your coaching and what you built at Fanshawe, and I mean, you can't ignore winning a national championship, especially as an Ontario school. Like, it's it's hard. If we get Wayne Wilkins on the show, he'll probably describe it too, that he's had some good clubs, and it's hard to win a college national championship, and maybe someday we'll get Red Deer on, and they can talk about their secret and their dynasty, but uh, moving on with your coaching career, you're the director of London Volleyball Club, and I just want our listeners to understand how big that club is, because it goes beyond OVA, right? Like, you guys have a Timbits program, like, you have kids playing in house league, like, if you had to ballpark it for us, how many kids are playing volleyball right now with LVC? Ooh, um, good question. I think between Timbits, Feed the Fire, um, so Timbits like ages four to nine, kind of like intro to volleyball. It doesn't really look like volleyball. It's keep the balloon off the ground and do some agility ladders, and mostly <laughs> physical literacy stuff. Feed the Fire, nine to 14 year olds. Uh, and then in the club, uh, it's tough because there's some kids that will tr- uh, register for multiple programs across the different seasons. But in total registrations, we're always just a hair over a thousand. Wow. So for one club to have that many athletes is very impressive. So with your coaching background, how much are you you sticking your nose in at those Feed the Fire, those Timbits programs? Like obviously you can coach high-level volleyball, but are you fired up to go work with like five-year-olds too? That's a good question. I don't go into the Timbits and Feed the Fires um, run on Sunday mornings, which I'm, I'm usually in with the Volleyball Canada Excellence Program. Um, so I'm on the opposite end of the city, but uh, I would, I'd love to get in there if, if they weren't run. They're usually running on the same eight-week schedules. But, yeah, that's not like a burning passion of mine. But uh, <laughs> I do hop into my wife's grade two class every now and then, and it's pretty fun. So I'm sure I'd be all right. Nice, nice. And, and that's one thing I actually forgot to mention is you were part of the or are part of the Center of Excellence program. So one pillar of that program is obviously you're coaching athletes that you might not necessarily be working with a competition. So does your practice style change or does the number of bodies in the gym really change what you do? Like, how do you approach different situations when you're coaching different levels or different programs? Yeah, I think the, the practices that the excellence program look totally different. Um, focus a little bit more on the technical because they're quite a bit younger. So it, for, for me, I think there's there's obviously more time for them to make the changes necessary if there are glaring technical issues with a skill. But more than that, I, I think the thing I've tried to really lock in on the last few years is more teaching concepts and talking about the cue reading decision-making piece and putting them in those situations over and over. So say playing defense in zone six, rather than just working on digging and the technical piece of digging, 
we would set up a couple boxes and have an arm on a box and to see whether the block closes or not and where do they fill in relation to to the hole in the block things like that that are that are more conceptual but still they're still touching the ball um, but they're more learning the game versus just doing technical things because I think if you if you learn the concept it doesn't take that long for you to figure out how to get hit by the ball and that ball to go up yeah, and that, that's a good example. You just gave another awesome example throughout the show. Like, I think coaches, at least when I'm, I'm doing coaching clinics, sometimes they get intimidated about cue reading, decision making, and defining it. But I always just bring it back to like, if this, then that. So that that's yeah, six what pack. Do you see? What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. So that that's a, a six pack is very complex position, and things are going a mile a minute. But you're right. If, if there's a seam or there's not, that's a great way to to learn. And I think coaches can do that, right? Just identify the situation you want and what are like two decisions they can make and, it could, and curating can start at two decisions and then you build from there right for sure yeah and, and something like some athletes naturally see a hole in the block and fill it but a lot don't they think well this is where you told me to stand so i don't want to get yelled at so i'm going to stand here whereas like by explaining here are the options and sometimes the block will be sometimes the middle fully sells out in the middle sometimes you're going to have time and the block's going to be closed. So what situations are you likely to have a closed block in front of you? And then some of the kids start to realize, oh, right, if it's a poor pass, they're probably going to close the block. And then you start to actually build a thinking athlete, not just someone that goes where you tell them and is afraid to yell that. So what goes into your decision about technical stuff? Like you've hinted on it earlier that at Fanshawe, you're really not going to like fix a platform or an arm swing. It's just not worth your time. So Coming through your coaching portfolio, like you've had a chance to work with Matty Lethbridge, who's playing at a very high level, but is goofy-footed. Or you've given some examples at Fanshawe where, you know, maybe JJ doesn't need to serve receive, right? So where do you kind of anchor to in your own coaching style where, you know what, it's not technical. I wouldn't teach that to a 12-year-old, but for where they are and what they're producing, like that's that's going to be okay and they can perform with, with the tools they have. Yeah, with with Maddie, we we tried we tried to fix it a couple times. I think she got it got it fixed at Mac there. But um, to me, if there's something that's going to threaten their body, like if it's an unsustainable motion, then that would be something I jump in on and, and try and fix. And if it's something glaringly like bad, bad, then yes, it needs to be addressed. But for me, especially at the college, if if it's if it looks ugly, but they found a way. I'm not going to jump in and, and try and try and fix that. Like my uh, now assistant coach Gunner, who went through the program for five years, um, he was a he played one year a, a club up in Blue Water Ballistics and um, was just a guy that played a lot of beach. And so he was really upright and shoveled and broke his arms a lot when he was in reception and was often taking the ball too close to his body. And, and technically, at first it was a gong show, but he refined things a little bit. Um, but still at the end was not a technical passer. And yet he was the MVP of um, the national final when we beat Red Deer. And he, on a four point scale, he passed a 3.3 on about 30 balls. They served him a ton and he was money and it, it and he was money for his, for his whole career. And, and that was one I'm really glad I didn't, didn't try and change. Yeah. Cause I think coaches can get caught up, especially with how much access we have to video. Like I'm thinking of two examples through Lennon fire where like David Doty looks like a setter that Shane white would make in the lab. Like the way his feet right. move, the way he takes the ball, pushes the ball out. And then you got a guy like Seb who I love his style, but man, he's going to sling it. He's going to dive. He's going to get his hands on the ball somehow, some way. And it's just a different way, but they both performed. Right. So how would you encourage coaches to say, 
okay, this is working or man, this is something we need to address because it, it's not always obvious, right? No, like for, for those two being one year apart, um, that was really neat to have them both in the excellence program and going through the club at the same time. So for Sebastian, like I've always kind of said, he's a feel guy. And, and when Ian, uh, Ian Evett and, and Pete and, uh, and I were coaching him with team Ontario, Ian was giving Sebastian a lot of info. And I remember we had a conversation and I was like, ah, oh, like that's not my place. Ian, it's your team. But I feel like Sebastian's a guy, the more info you give, um, you're going to bung him up. I think just let him go feel the game. Cause he has such an incredible, just uh, trust for what he's doing out there. And the more he thinks the, the worse he plays. So just let him go feel the vibe where, where Doty did want specific footwork patterns and, and they really worked for him. So for me, Sebastian was um, probably at his most technical in like 17, 18 U. And then he started to, to really feel the game out and get a little maroofy with things. Cause he's definitely got that maroof vibe. <laughs> Like he'll take sets off tempo and do things that every now and then drive you crazy because it doesn't work out. But in the big picture, it's that creativity um, was really helpful in it, and I loved it. So two totally different setters, but again, Doty Doty seemed to like the technical side, and and um, obviously Preston at Mac is, has uh, done an awesome job making that stick. Um, but yeah, for, for Sebastian, some of that stuff just wasn't wasn't clicking, so went away from it. And are these, are these things you're identifying with like your coach's eye? Like, is this the art to coaching? Are you having conversations? Like I'm hearing you talk about your athletes. How are you learning about the learner? If that's the way I'm going to describe this, where you can identify that Seb doesn't care that they're in this rotation. You want to run a spread and that the defender in five is going to drop back one step. Like he doesn't care about that stuff. He wants to feel it and see it and do his own vision and play those cat and mouse games with the middle where like another setter might want to know everything that's happening on the other side of the net and you can help them so how are you getting to the point where you know you've you've uh, identified this properly and you can really help the athlete um you just honestly i think for me just sitting back and watching and, and it's not about what to say it's about what not to say so it's like okay sebastian you didn't get squared there you jumped early you were almost on the ground when you set the ball <laughs> but you got the middle and the right side to yip on the 30 and you got no block, and what can I really say right now? Um, yeah, it's basically a decision to, like, do I want to nitpick on everything, or is he finding a style that works for him that's still in line with the main concepts of what we're trying to do? So for Sebastian, it was no one went to shut up and just let him do his thing. Yeah, and for our listeners, and, and hopefully if Seb is listening, I'm, I'm not picking on him. I think he's just a perfect example because so many people have seen him play, and I, and I love his game. He's just got... A little bit of an outlier quality that he doesn't look like the cookie cutter setter. So if you're listening, Seb, I, I love you, and this is why we're talking about you because you can do some crazy things. Yeah, you can take it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Well, we're gonna have to get you back on because I feel like we haven't covered everything. But I'm looking at the clock and I'm taking a lot of your time. But uh, you're, you're you're no exception. You have to give us a funny story that we've made a tradition. So you've coached at the highest level, you've played at the highest level. Volleyball is a crazy sport. There must be some situation that you found yourself in being like, man, this is this is unusual, but I'm gonna laugh about it later. Yeah. Um, let's see. Probably the most uncomfortable I've felt due to volleyball. Um, youth national team 2004, we were in Mexico City for the Norseca Championships and we were staying in the Olympic Village from whenever Mexico City had the Olympics um, and they had told us, do not go off the Olympic grounds. Like, do not, by any means. 
And I think we think about Mexico and we think beaches and resorts and nice stuff. Mexico City's got some rough parts and it's a big, big city. And so we went for a walk and we were only gone for a half hour, wound up getting, uh, going through Walmart where they were shoving shots at us, trying to get us to drink. Um, and of course, dumbass, we're all wearing our Canada gear, looking like a team wandering around. We tried to go into a convenience store and I guess bypassed some protocol at the door. So all of a sudden there were AKs out at us. So there's myself, um, Sandra Ratzep and Kyle Bryce all being held at gunpoint with these people screaming at us in, in Spanish and, and we have no idea what the heck's going on. Um, they wound up, I think it was Kyle that wound up on the wall with this guy and here we are getting searched and we're wondering what the heck is going on because we don't know anything, um, any Spanish obviously. And um, yeah, we, we saw some other things on that walk that I probably can't say on, on your show, but um, yeah, Mexico City jumps out as, as probably the wildest eye-opening experience where we realized how lucky we are to be from where we are. Wow. Yeah, that's that's definitely an experience you probably wouldn't have gotten if you weren't a high-level volleyball player. So thanks for sharing that one. No problem. Sorry, I don't have anything juicier. No, that's that's good. Anytime guns come out, uh, <laughs> anytime guns go out or you can experience a different culture, those are always good stories that make us really appreciate where we come from, I think. Oh, yeah. And it was, uh, it was um, sewage day. Forgot that part. So there were little holes in the streets where people would dump their buckets of, of personal waste and so we're walking through this one area and it it smelled like it was sewage day and we're just watching these people dump buckets of crap everywhere and that was yeah eye-opening wow wow well like yeah. i said we're, we're gonna have to get you back on because i feel like we haven't touched a lot but i do appreciate you sharing and for any of our listeners this is you at baseline like i can remember being on lunch at hbc or provincial team and just asking questions and you're always a guy willing to share whether it's you never really label things right or wrong. It's kind of this is how you do it, and if you want to try it, you're more than welcome. So thanks for sharing all that you did with me, our listeners, and everybody down the road. I think you're a great ambassador for our sport and definitely learned a lot and not afraid to share your learning. So thank you. Awesome. No, thanks for having me. It's great.